Welcome to Countering the Opioid Crisis, Time to Act, from the National Academy of Medicine and the Aspen Institute. This podcast explores the most critical drivers of the opioid epidemic and key strategies to stem the crisis. Host Ruth Katz leads the Aspen Institute's Health, Medicine, and Society program and co-chairs the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on Countering the U.S. Opioid Epidemic. Here's Ruth. Addiction is often viewed as a moral failing or weakness rather than what it is, a chronic relapsing disease. More than 3 million people across the United States have an opioid use disorder, and four out of five of them go untreated. Why is that? Among many reasons for this huge gap in care, perhaps one of the most impactful and least talked about is stigma. People with substance use disorders may be stigmatized by their family, their friends, their healthcare providers, and they might even stigmatize themselves. To get people with addiction the care they need, we must focus on removing stigma as a barrier. With us today is Edna Boone, a health information technology expert whose family has experienced addiction and stigma up front. And Dr. Charlene Dewey, Professor of Medical Education and Administration and Professor of Medicine at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Both are members of the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on Countering the U.S. Opioid Epidemic. Edna, Charlene, welcome. It's great to have you here. Thank you, Ruth. Great to be here. Thanks, and happy to be here. I want to start by hopefully getting us pretty much on the same page here. And that's with trying to get a basic understanding by what we mean with the concept of stigma. How would you guys actually define that and How do people actually experience it? I'll take that one first, Ruth. First, you know, we think about stigma in the basic definitions of something like a mark or a shame or some form of discredit, like a stain, so to say. Um, And basic definitions would say it's like a diagnosis of a disease, right? It's, it's, It's something that people put on another individual thinking something untoward toward them. And addiction is a chronic relapsing disease. Um, It's not really a moral failing or something that people view as a personality deficit, so to say, but that is where the root of stigma actually comes from. There are probably several different misconceptions around substance use. These can result from a number of different factors. Um, Some of them might be rooted in the historical and racial precedence of the war on drugs that was set, you know, way back in the 70s when it was more of a criminal kind of process. And we still see addiction, so to say, or substance use disorder as a criminal act for many individuals. And that's a form of stigma. Addiction isn't really a choice. This is a process that happens when someone has a genetic predisposition and they try a substance and then their brain adapts to it. So it really is not a choice, even though people see it as a choice. Oh, they can just stop that. They should just stop using you know, that substance. That's not really what it's about. And so um, there, people might have a predisposed risk, but it's really the, a process that they end up you know, developing. And 
sadly, it's when they're struggling the most when they have an addiction or a substance use disorder, when they're treated the most poorly. Rather than giving them the help that they need, often they find out that they're being chastised or stigmatized because of the condition that they have, which is a chronic relapsing brain condition and not one of a stain or a mark on who they are as an individual. So Charlene, is there more to it than that? Uh, You use the word behavior. Are there stigmatizing behaviors in addition to stigmatizing language that we need to be looking out for as well? Yes, Ruth, absolutely. We think about language being one of the major components for sure, but there are behaviors and attitudes that are manifested in a variety of different ways. Sometimes they're conscious, sometimes they're unconscious, and they're those biases that people develop over time. In the healthcare arena, so to say, if someone is stigmatized because they feel like um, the healthcare provider says, well, they can't really be competent or make their own decisions because they're using a substance, then that is a behavioral kind of approach. There's definitely behaviors, there's definitely attitudes. And again, using some of the terminologies that we have used in the past, and I think a lot of people are growing out of these, but they still exist, right? Like dirty if they're still using a substance or um, staying clean when it seems like somebody might be in recovery. All of those are attitudes, words, behaviors, actions, again, subconsciously or consciously that contribute to stigma, um, which are negatively impacting our patients who are trying to deal with a substance use disorder. Charlene, you just mentioned, and I mentioned in my opening comments, that health professionals themselves may exhibit stigmatizing kinds of behavior. Why would those who should know better, if you will, actually engage in this kind of activity? First, you know, I have to say healthcare professionals, they're normal people, right? Um, They all grew up in society just like we did. And depending on what their experiences were, might influence how they're going to actually engage with someone who has a substance use disorder. So when they go to medical school, they might already have preconceived notions about what substance use disorders are. And those are gonna be due to social depictions within media, um, cultural conversations that they've had, or maybe the lack of conversations that they've had around what substance use disorders actually are. And so when they go into training, We actually have to somewhat untrain them first, right? And then retrain them into understanding and appreciating substance use disorder as a medical condition that actually needs treatments and interventions. But what we probably also know is that they're gonna have um, experiences. And so depending on who's teaching them, they might have negative experiences or positive experiences. If we have healthcare um, professionals who are training them and they themselves have had positive experiences, then they're more likely to demonstrate those positive experiences with the students that they're teaching, whether it's physicians, nurses, PAs, whatever, right? But if the students also experience negative experiences from, faculty that uses stigma, or maybe they see negative examples of the outcomes of treating substance use disorder, those can all be impacted because there aren't enough treatment centers, enough good treatment programs, or people who can treat them like addiction medicine doctors. And so if all of those really start to develop more of a negative compared to a positive experience for that student, then by the time they get to residency program or by the time they finish residency program, they themselves will only reinforce 
the stigmatizing beliefs that they came into medical school with or nursing school, um, but then they might also have even worsening negative attitudes, biases, or stigma around substance use disorder because of those experiences. And of course, we know that that's gonna end up leading to negative impacts like reduced access and quality of care for the patients and delayed detection and referral and early treatments. So Edna, let me, let me ask you this question. Charlene has just described sort of in general the kinds of behaviors we might see, the, the kind of language that people might experience, what health professionals learn in medical school that may even set them up for this kind of behavior. You and your family know all about stigma firsthand, both stigmatizing language and stigmatizing behavior. What was that like for your family? Can you talk a little bit about your own experience? Sure. You know, I, I go back to the definition of stigma and think about that mark of shame, discredit, a stain. Um, my family was hit pretty hard by this several years ago. We lost two young men, so that was really difficult uh, to go through. And then it's difficult sometimes to talk about it, right? You think about the anonymity of both myself and the people in my family. But then I have to also look inward and say, okay, I've got my own stigmatizing language and behavior. And I've experienced the shame of stigma even just talking about this. So even in a closed meeting of the NAMS Opioid Action Collaborative, I felt the word uh, pressure to change my language, right? To use the term opioid addiction rather than saying, oh, heroin or fentanyl addiction. And then to make sure that folks knew that the folks in my family that were afflicted had gone to college and had graduate degrees, right? So this behavior, this is language that we use around this disease. Um, it's definitely clouded my frame of reference. Uh, and I know that when I speak about it. Then I think about, okay, in my healthcare career, what have I experienced, right? So I remember early on when we had electronic health records that I work on, we started to realize we can use the data in these systems to you know, prevent uh, medical harm and, and try to help patients, right? But what we started to do is let's say, let's watch the patients that come to the emergency room and those that come to urgent care centers, right? That are seeking pain prescriptions. And we wanted to flag their medical records in the computer so that we wouldn't write any new prescriptions. And this was kind of like, uh, we're gonna stop the drug shoppers, right? Um, and I thought about the way we treat shoplifters, right? When they're being followed around a store. So our ultimate goal here, right, was to not harm the patient by providing more medication, but the focus and the behavior ended up being on trying to catch, you know, catch someone and blame that patient rather than the focus of let's, this is an opportunity, they need care and we can get them into the system and treat them. Instead, again, this kind of shame and discredit both in behavior and in language. And I do want to get back to language because one of the things that we talk about, and this is a mouthful, but there's this pivot, right, to person-first recovery-centered language, right? Words matter. They reflect our attitudes towards um, people that have this disorder. And if we use the stigmatizing language or behavior, we can interrupt them from seeking the care they need. Or we can cause them to have worse outcomes uh, just because they are perceiving perhaps their peers who have cancer experience, experience like thoughtful, considerate care. 
so, you know, it's more than just getting your feelings hurt. It's, it's a serious problem and we need to treat it seriously. It can have a real detrimental effect. You know, I'm thinking back in the day, I can remember growing up that my parents, certainly my grandparents, if there was a diagnosis of cancer in the family or even among friends, nobody would say the word. Uh, they would refer to, she's been diagnosed with the big C, which was stigmatizing in its, in its own way. But addiction, of course, is just as, as both of you have spoken about, uh, that's a disease too. But I, I, there seems to be a different sense of how we think of cancer than we think of addiction. And I want to get into that in terms of the stigmatizing effects. But before we, we go any deeper um, into that problem and think about potential solutions, can we step back just a little bit and talk how we actually got to this point? Charlene, you mentioned... Um, the war on drugs, some of the other activities or issues that have been around for a long time. How did we get to the point that the medical condition of addiction is in es- has in essence become a mark of disgrace? How did we get there? Edna, you want, can you start us off on that? Sure. You know, one of the things we just have to look at, how do we structure care and health care, right? We have separated addiction care and really mental health care as well into silos. Like so much so that healthcare professionals don't necessarily feel it's their responsibility to treat or even consider treating people that have these ailments. So these silos have further perpetuated the stigmatizing language, behavior, and everything that we've been talking about. We also have separate regulations, right, around prescription medications uh, for opioid use disorder uh, from, quote, like normal prescriptions. So you need to have formal training and waivers to prescribe medication for opioid use disorder, but no formal training, (laughs) no waivers to prescribe opioids, right? So it's this topsy-turvy, you know, where do we get here and and how do we get ourselves out? Let me ask you both this question. Does race or poverty or even wealth also somehow impact or play a role in um, SUD stigma? Yes. So what's, what's interesting, if we go back again, like we talked about the, the historical aspects of the war on drugs and how patients were seen as derelicts of society because they you know, were using substances or couldn't hold down jobs or things like that, they were criminalized, right? It was, it was taken through the process of um, being tough on them, getting them you know, into jail so they could get off their substances and everything like that. And so that is kind of where we started. And what we need to think about over time, where have we come? And in thinking that early on, even in history, we just didn't have really good understanding, Ruth, right? We, 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 there's plenty of people who will still say the word addiction all the time. I tend to actually use substance use disorder because the DSM-5 only lists substance use disorder. It doesn't actually- Darlene, let me interrupt. What's the DSM-5? That's the diagnosis management diseases for psychiatry and all the mental health conditions um, in which it lists substance use disorder or an opioid use disorder or an alcohol use disorder. It's the sort of the, um, the Bible that uh, lists various diseases and conditions and explains it and substance use disorder is included as one of those. Exactly. 
Got it. Exactly. And so it doesn't even use the word addiction actually in there. And so I actually have learned to stay away from that. But if I use myself as an example, just here as the history, right? I've been in medicine for over 30 years now. And when I first started, I actually started off helping smoking cessation because of um, it being a part of a modifiable risk factor for cardiovascular diseases or like heart attacks, strokes, things like that. Um, and over time, as I had experience with other patients who had different substance use disorders or with great addiction medicine or general internal medicine doctors who took care of patients with addiction disorders, then we learned over time what to do better. And so where we are today, as far as definitions, as far as treatment, as far as access and, and, and resources, is very different than what we had back in the 70s. So we're kind of trying to untie that knot. We, we got into it for maybe some of the best intentions, but it didn't last that way and it's evolving. And so what, what we get back to now with the race and the social economic status is that earlier on, what we saw is more socially disadvantaged patients or um, minorities or ethnically diverse individuals being more criminalized for substance use versus when it became more of an epidemic if a Caucasian population started having complications or side effects from opioid use and or um, inadvertent deaths. So you can see just how from lower social economic to higher social economic or racial background from minorities to majorities, it made a difference in how people looked at it. And of course, now we refer to the opioid situation as a crisis, whereas we didn't refer to some of these other addiction problems earlier as a crisis. Let me, following up on that, so race and poverty can also affect stigma in this case. What about in terms of ages? I assume that stigma is experienced by people of all ages, but do people of different ages experience stigma differently? And I'm going to ask you to jump in here, again, reflecting on your own experience. Can you give us any sense if there's a difference in how young people versus old people may experience stigma? Well, sure. I mean, there's, there's, some of the obvious, just cognitively, right? You, you don't have a mature person. Um, you've got emotional, psychological uh, peer pressure, right? So their adolescents and young adults are, are really vulnerable. They're really vulnerable to substance use. And then again, when does it cross over to substance use disorder? They might be predisposed, right? So what, uh, what is available to them? And there's a lot of issues around confidentiality, right? Can they talk to their healthcare providers about this or their counselors or their family? Uh, are people going to refer them to treatment? Are they going to be ostracized? Again, we get back to kind of some of the communities of color. Or is, you know, are we going to get back to kind of criminal legal issues with police? Uh, and then there's the whole concept of consent, right? When we think about the prescriptions of opioids, right? A lot of times you hear about sports injuries, right? And these uh, young men uh, now in their late 20s, 30s, started in high school, right? So these, these are things that are with us um, and then not always recognized. I mean, I think we're doing a better job than we were, uh, but it, it's still out there and it's not as easy for them to get help. Uh, as it is those, uh, you know, that might be of legal age. 
Charlene, you're a clinician. What's your experience been old versus young? Well, and, and that's where these silos start to come in again, right? So we have young people being taken care of by pediatricians. I'm a general internist, so I don't see anybody unless they're considered an adult, okay? And then you have that chiasm of what happens when someone, as Edna just said, maybe had a sports injury, started using an opioid for a very legitimate medical reason, um, becomes dependent on it or develops an iatrogenic dependency. And then they're transferring over from their adolescent years into their adult years. Um, That's the most vulnerable population for opioid use disorder, actually, the adolescents and the young adults. In the older patient population, while it still exists, it's almost minimal. What we know is that younger people, either from their predisposition genetically from their cognitive development that aren't ready to handle certain decisions yet, or again, predisposed, that is the population that's most vulnerable. And then like Edna said, their access is different, right? They might have stigma and fear and um, friends saying one thing, parents saying another thing, schools programs saying one thing, and then they can't access care necessarily unless their parents are with them if they're under the age of 18 as an adult, right? So they can't make decisions on their own, but yet they might be using substances. It becomes a little bit of a, of a variety of different things that, are, that pose as barriers for those young individuals to get into help and get the help that they need it. So stigma can affect people of all ages, and we've talked about race, and poverty, those things may experience stigma differently as well. And health professionals themselves may use stigmatizing language or exhibit stigmatizing behavior. Edna, what do you think about this? What are your thoughts? So the reality of you've got this expertise at Vanderbilt, and I think at many other health systems that are looking at this uh, and really trying to, to move the needle. But the reality is, is we have this like patchwork in middle America. And where there's rural America, we have huge gaps, right? So this is where we have some of the needs, right? And so what's the experience as someone who's experienced that uh, several different times is that even within the recovery community, there's a disparity, not just in terms of language, but in what um, treatments are being offered, right? So my own family experienced this. You, you go in and some treatment centers will say they will offer the medication assisted for opioid use disorder and some don't. So there is like a body of scientific evidence that says we should be doing this. And we've got insurance companies in the mix and we've got stigma. And some of that does come from the providers, right? Uh, I'm not ready and I'm not comfortable to use this prescription on this patient that needs it. So, you know, you've got this this, you know, in some sense, some of the academic centers working through this, and then you've got the reality on the ground. And again, I think stigma is at the root of many of these things. You often hear that health professionals will say, if I provide this kind of help, I'm just uh, furthering the addiction problem. Charlene, you started to say something. I was going to say to Edna, of course, my heart goes out to her and to anyone else who's been in that same predicament, right? Um, and there, and she's absolutely right, because there are gaping holes in, in training and in resources. Um, the, the medications for opioid use disorder or um, medical assistant treatment, unfortunately, right now, we have a process that physicians actually have to go through a special training in order to prescribe buprenorphine or treatments for opioid use disorders. 
and there's a criteria which they have to meet in order to prescribe it. But that's one of those things that actually becomes a barrier and almost becomes the stigma with it, right? If we as healthcare providers can't actually prescribe the medicines to help those individuals who actually need it and to get the training to help them understand why and how as healthcare providers we can and should be helping these individuals. And then I'll, I'll throw one more thing on that. And I know we're talking about more healthcare providers, but then let's make sure the insurance companies are covering it, right? I mean, if it's not covered, um, people are not getting the care they need. Absolutely. And of course, that stigma of a different sort, the decision not to cover it. So you guys have given us a really good idea of the nature of the problem, that is stigma itself, uh, what it is, um, how we got here and how it works today. Let's turn for a moment to look at big picture solutions. Can you give us some examples of how stigma has been successfully dealt with within the context of healthcare? We used to talk about cancer as the big C. We don't do that anymore. We talk about cancer and we even talk treatments, having real discussions about it. Are there other examples out there that you can share with us of how to deal with stigma successfully? Either one of you, jump in. I feel like the, probably the most obvious one is uh, AIDS and HIV. I mean, I don't, I'm sure listeners remember, but individuals, including healthcare professionals, because I know I was working in hospitals when this was happening, they were afraid to touch people that had AIDS, you know, or, or HIV. They thought they might catch it, right? So even though the science taught us otherwise, like the facts were not enough to change the public opinion. Once AIDS was stigmatized, and you might get it, it really took this huge tide uh, to turn, right? So we had organizations like ACT UP, you've got the AIDS quilt came on into DC, you had people like Princess Diana, who visited AIDS patients in the hospital, you know, Rock Hudson from a totally different generation, you know, came out that he had had AIDS. And then you have, you know, Ryan White, the youth, you know, just fighting to attend school. Ryan White was a, a young boy who contracted AIDS and, uh, as Edna said, wasn't allowed to go to school, was completely shunned and uh, ultimately died of the disease. And there's a major piece of legislation in Congress that's named after him. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the collective actions, they, they created a seismic shift right around AIDS. And we saw that there was systemic change. We don't talk about AIDS in that fashion anymore. And it's time we got to now make that same kind of shift uh, around the stigmatization, uh, the stigma, uh, the way we stigmatize uh, substance abuse disorder. Charlene, are there other examples? Uh, HIV AIDS is a good one. Yeah, mental health in general, sexually transmitted diseases, which we now actually call sexually transmitted infections. And like you said, cancer, those are all really good examples. As a community, we have to look at those things that we do that give good messages or messages that help humanize things, as opposed to letting people wallow in fear or bias about something like mental health or cancer or sexually transmitted diseases. I think it's certainly a place where we can start recognizing that substance use disorder is a chronic disease process. It's a process within the brain, there's a genetic basis for it. Okay, and if we kind of start with that, maybe we can start to shift some of the stigma that people are experiencing because of the lack of understanding or fear around substance use disorders in general. 
I don't want to let you go without asking one final question to really help our listeners, because it seems to me that each one of us has a role to play here uh, in trying to address the problem. So let me ask each of you uh, in closing, what is the one suggestion or idea that you would tell our listeners that each one of them could do in their everyday lives to help the stigmatization of individuals with substance use disorder? What's the one thing? Oh, for me, it's just people speaking out. I think it can make a huge difference, um, spreading awareness to friends, family, and certainly uh, health colleagues about using person-centered language when we talk about addiction. I mean, if you think about a loved one that you might be stigmatizing right now. So everyone needs to speak with care and thoughtfulness. And we need to change that language and our behavior now. Charlene? Yeah, so for me, I think I'm gonna address, you know, healthcare providers in general to think about um, embracing a reflective position, asking themselves, what is there that I can do that's gonna be different by, you know, not placing judgment, good or bad, on individuals who have substance use disorders? But how can we as healthcare providers actually find better ways of helping our patients in the success of managing a substance use disorder and really all conditions, right? But it definitely starts with us as an individual reflective practice. I have this saying that says, be part of the solution and not part of the problem. Thank you, Charlene. Thanks, Edna. Great to have you here. Great to be here. Thank you, Ruth. Edna Boone is a health information technology expert and Dr. Charlene Dewey is a professor of medical education and administration at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. They are both members of the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on Countering the U.S. Opioid Epidemic. If you're interested in diving deeper into identifying and addressing stigma surrounding opioid treatment in the United States, register for the Virtual Stigma of Addiction Summit coming up on June 10th. There's a link in this episode's description to that program. In upcoming episodes of Countering the Opioid Crisis, Time to Act, We'll explore racism's role in the opioid epidemic and the changing nature of pain management. So be sure to follow us in your favorite podcast app and make it easier for others to find this podcast by giving us a rating in Apple Podcasts. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Ruth Katz. Be well and stay safe. Ruth Katz is Vice President and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Health Medicine and Society Program. She co-chairs the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on countering the U.S. opioid epidemic. The conversations in this podcast build on the ongoing work of the NAM Action Collaborative. The Action Collaborative is committed to developing, curating, and disseminating multi-sector solutions designed to reduce opioid misuse and improve outcomes for all who are affected by the opioid crisis. To learn more about the Action Collaborative, please visit nam.edu slash opioid collaborative. Our theme song was composed by Benjamin Lerner and Joshua Sherman and recorded at Old Mill Road Recording in East Arlington, Vermont. The Aspen Institute's Pearl Mac created our logo. Our podcast editor and producer is Shauna Lewis. Special thanks to the Aspen Institute and the National Academy of Medicine. 